This is section 18 of What is Man and Other Essays by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. As Concerns Interpreting the Deity 1. This line of hieroglyphs was for fourteen years the despair of all the scholars who labored over the mysteries of the Rosetta Stone. Figure 1. After five years of study, Champollion translated it thus. Therefore, let the worship of Epiphanes be maintained in all the temples, this upon pain of death. That was the twenty-fourth translation that had been furnished by scholars. For a time it stood, but only for a time. Then doubts began to assail it and undermine it, and the scholars resumed their labors. Three years of patient work produced eleven new translations, among them this by Grunfeld, was received with considerable favor. The horse of Epiphanes shall be maintained at the public expense, this upon pain of death. But the following rendering, by Gospodin, was received by the learned world with yet greater favor. The priest shall explain the wisdom of Epiphanes to all these people, and these shall listen with reverence upon pain of death. Seven years followed, in which twenty-one fresh and widely varying renderings were scored, none of them quite convincing. But now at last came Rawlinson, the youngest of all the scholars, with a translation which was immediately and universally recognized as being the correct version, and his name became famous in a day. So famous, indeed, that even the children were familiar with it, and such a noise did the achievement itself make, that not even the noise of the monumental political event of that same year, the flight from Elba, was able to smother it to silence. Rawlinson's version reads as follows. Therefore, walk not away from the wisdom of Epiphanes, but turn and follow it. So shall it conduct thee to the temple's peace, and soften for thee the sorrows of life and the pains of death. Here is another difficult text, figure 2. It is demotic, a style of Egyptian writing and a phase of the language which had perished from the knowledge of all men twenty-five hundred years before the Christian era. Our red Indians have left many records, in the form of pictures, upon our crags and boulders. It has taken our most gifted and painstaking students two centuries to get at the meanings hidden in these pictures. Yet there are still two little lines of hieroglyphics among the figures grouped upon the Dighton rocks, which they have not succeeded in interpreting to their satisfaction. These, figure three, the suggested solutions of this riddle are practically innumerable. They would fill a book. Thus we have infinite trouble in solving man-made mysteries. It is only when we set out to discover the secret of God that our difficulties disappear. It was always so. In antique Roman times it was the custom of the deity to try to conceal his intentions in the entrails of birds, and this was patiently and hopefully continued century after century, although the attempted concealment never succeeded in a single recorded instance. The augurs could read entrails as easily as a modern child can read coarse print. Roman history is full of the marvels of interpretation, which these extraordinary men performed. These strange and wonderful achievements move our awe and compel our admiration. Those men could pierce to the marrow of a mystery instantly. 
if the rosetta stone idea had been introduced it would have defeated them but entrails had no embarrassments for them entrails have gone out now entrails and dreams it was at last found out that as hiding-places for the divine intentions they were inadequate a part of the wall of Velletri, having in former times been struck with thunder the response of the soothsayers was that a native of that town would some time or other arrive at supreme power bones suetonius page one thirty eight some time or other it looks indefinite but no matter it happened all the same one needed only to wait and be patient and keep watch then he would find out that the thunderstroke had caesar augustus in mind and had come to give notice there were other advance advertisements one of them appeared just before caesar augustus was born and was most poetic and touching and romantic in its feelings and aspects it was a dream it was dreamed by caesar augustus's mother and interpreted at the usual rates atia before her delivery dreamed that her bowels stretched to the stars and expanded through the whole circuit of heaven and earth suetonius page one thirty nine that was in the augur's line and furnished him no difficulties but it would have taken rawlinson and champollion fourteen years to make sure of what it meant because they would have been surprised and dizzy it would have been too late to be valuable then and the bill for service would have been barred by the statute of limitation in those old roman days a gentleman's education was not complete until he had taken a theological course at the seminary and learned how to translate entrails caesar augustus's education received this final polish all through his life whenever he had poultry on the menu he saved the interiors and kept himself informed of the deity's plans by exercising upon those interiors the arts of augury in his first consulship while he was observing the auguries twelve vultures presented themselves as they had done to romulus and when he offered sacrifice the livers of all the victims were folded inward in the lower part a circumstance which was regarded by those present who had skill in things of that nature as an indubitable prognostic of great and wonderful fortune suetonius page one forty one indubitable is a strong word but no doubt it was justified if the livers were really turned that way in those days chicken livers were strangely and delicately sensitive to coming events no matter how far off they might be and they could never keep still but would curl and squirm like that particularly when vultures came and showed interest in that approaching great event and in breakfast two we may now skip eleven hundred and thirty or forty years which brings us down to enlightened christian times and the troubled days of king stephen of england the augur has had his day and has been long ago forgotten the priest had fallen heir to his trade king henry is dead stephen that bold and outrageous person comes flying over from normandy to steal the throne from henry's daughter he accomplished his crime and henry of huntington a priest of high degree mourns over it in his chronicle the archbishop of canterbury consecrated stephen wherefore the lord visited the archbishop with the same judgment which he had inflicted upon him who struck jeremiah the great priest he died within a year 
Stevens was the greater offense, but Stephen could wait. Not so the archbishop, apparently. The kingdom was a prey to intestine wars. Slaughter, fire, and rapine spread ruin throughout the land. Cries of distress, horror, and woe rose in every quarter. That was the result of Stephen's crime. These unspeakable conditions continued during nineteen years. Then Stephen died as comfortably as any man ever did, and was honorably buried. It makes one pity the poor archbishop, and wish that he too could have been let off as leniently. How did Henry of Huntington know that the archbishop was sent to his grave by judgment of God for consecrating Stephen? He does not explain. Neither does he explain why Stephen was awarded a pleasanter death than he was entitled to, while the aged King Henry, his predecessor, who had ruled England thirty-five years to the people's strongly worded satisfaction, was condemned to close his life in circumstances most distinctly unpleasant, inconvenient, and disagreeable. His was probably the most uninspiring funeral that is set down in history. There is not a detail about it that is attractive. It seems to have been just the funeral for Stephen, and even at this far distant day it is matter of just regret that by an indiscretion the wrong man got it. Whenever God punishes a man, Henry of Huntington knows why it was done, and tells us, and his pen is eloquent with admiration, but when a man has earned punishment and escapes, he does not explain. He is evidently puzzled, but he does not say anything. I think it is often apparent that he is pained by these discrepancies, but loyally tries his best not to show it. When he cannot praise, he delivers himself of a silence so marked that a suspicious person could mistake it for suppressed criticism. However, he has plenty of opportunities to feel contented with the way things go. His book is full of them. King David of Scotland, under color of religion, caused his followers to deal most barbarously with the English. They ripped open women, tossed children on the points of spears, butchered priests at the altars, and, cutting off the heads from the images on crucifixes, placed them on the bodies of the slain, while in exchange they fixed on the crucifixes the heads of their victims. Wherever the Scots came, there was the same scene of horror and cruelty, women shrieking, old men lamenting, amid the groans of the dying and the despair of the living. But the English got the victory. Then the chief of the men of Lothian fell, pierced by an arrow, and all his followers were put to flight. For the Almighty was offended at them, and their strength was rent like a cobweb. Offended at them for what? For committing those fearful butcheries? No, for that was the common custom on both sides, and not open to criticism. Then was it for doing the butcheries under cover of religion? No, that was not it. Religious feeling was often expressed in that fervent way all through those old centuries. The truth is, he was not offended at them at all. He was only offended at their king, who had been false to an oath. Then why did not he put the punishment upon the king instead of upon them? It is a difficult question. One can see by the chronicle that the judgments fell rather customarily upon the wrong person, but Henry of Huntington does not explain why. Here is one that went true, and the chronicler's satisfaction in it is not hidden. In the month of August, 
Providence displayed its justice in a remarkable manner, for two of the nobles who had converted monasteries into fortifications, expelling the monks, their sin being the same, met with a similar punishment. Robert Marmion was one, Godfrey de Mandeville the other. Robert Marmion, issuing forth against the enemy, was slain under the walls of the monastery, being the only one who fell, though he was surrounded by his troops. Dying excommunicated, he became subject to death everlasting. In like manner Earl Godfrey was singled out among his followers, and shot with an arrow by a common foot-soldier. He made light of the wound, but he died of it in a few days, under excommunication. See here the like judgment of God, memorable through all ages. This exaltation jars upon me, not because of the death of the men, for they deserve that, but because it is death eternal, in white-hot fire and flame. It makes my flesh crawl. I have not known more than three men, or perhaps four, in my whole lifetime, whom I would rejoice to see writhing in those fires for even a year, let alone forever. I believe I would relent before the year was up, and get them out if I could. I think that in the long run, if a man's wife and babies, who had not harmed me, should come crying and pleading, I couldn't stand it. I know I should forgive him and let him go, even if he had violated a monastery. Henry of Huntington has been watching Godfrey and Marmion for nearly seven hundred and fifty years now, but I couldn't do it, I know I couldn't. I am soft and gentle in my nature, and I should have forgiven them seventy and seven times long ago, and I think God has. But this is only an opinion, and not authoritative, like Henry of Huntington's interpretations. I could learn to interpret, but I have never tried. I get so little time. All through his book Henry exhibits his familiarity with the intentions of God, and with the reasons for his intentions. Sometimes, very often in fact, the act follows the intention after such a wide interval of time that one wonders how Henry could fit one act out of a hundred to one intention out of a hundred, and get the thing right every time, when there was such abundant choice among acts and intentions. Sometimes a man offends the deity with a crime, and is punished for it thirty years later. Meantime he has committed a million other crimes. No matter, Henry can pick out the one that brought the worms. Worms were generally used in those days for the slaying of particularly wicked people. This has gone out now, but in old times it was a favorite. It always indicated a case of wrath. For instance, the just God, avenging Robert Fitzhildebrand's perfidy, a worm grew in his vitals, which gradually gnawing its way through his intestines, fattened on the abandoned man till, tortured with excruciating sufferings and venting himself in bitter moans, he was, by a fitting punishment, brought to his end. P. 400. It was probably an alligator, but we cannot tell. We only know it was a particular breed, and only used to convey wrath. Some authorities think it was an ichthyosaurus, but there is much doubt. However, one thing we do know, and that is that that worm had been due years and years. Robert F. had violated a monastery once. He had committed unprintable crimes since, and they had been permitted, under disapproval. But the ravishment of the monastery had not been forgotten nor forgiven, 
and the worm came at last. Why were these reforms put off in this strange way? What was to be gained by it? Did Henry of Huntington really know his facts, or was he only guessing? Sometimes I am half persuaded that he is only a guesser, and not a good one. The divine wisdom must surely be of the better quality than he makes it out to be. Five hundred years before Henry's time, some forecasts of the Lord's purposes were furnished by a pope, who perceived, by certain perfectly trustworthy signs furnished by the deity for the information of his familiars, that the end of the world was about to come. But as this end of the world draws near, many things are at hand which have not before happened. As changes in the air, terrible signs in the heavens, tempests out of the common order of the seasons, wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places, all which will not happen in our days, but after our days all will come to pass. Still the end was so near that these signs were sent before that we may be careful for our souls and be found prepared to meet the impending judgment. That was thirteen hundred years ago. This is really no improvement on the work of the Roman augurs. End of section 18. As concerns interpreting the deity.